It is, um, it's interesting to, uh, to, 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 to preach to you this morning, um, especially in light of a couple things, one personal and one not so personal. Um, the personal one is that uh, earlier this week, my wife and I had the opportunity to celebrate 19 years of being married. And so, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. We are um, leaving after lunch today to go on a cruise to celebrate. Uh, Reed will be preaching for me next week on why you are not supposed to boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Really looking forward to that. Um, he's been working really hard. So, um, <clears throat> but it is, it is interesting for us, it is interesting for us personally to be um, leaving on a cruise to celebrate our wedding in a country that no longer knows what marriage is. You know, you sit there and you go, and it's not about the politics. And you go, man, I just prefer for things to be really black and white. Well, if you've paid attention to the news, that doesn't even work anymore because now people don't even know what race they are. They get to choose what race they are, irregardless of the shade of mel- you know, melatonin in their skin. So we live in just a really weird, weird, weird world where things are different. And um, the challenge is to really know what do we do now? Do we break out the sandwich boards and we start picketing and boycotting and have it flying? No, that's not the right way to do it. The truth is, by recent action by the Supreme Court, uh, our world is more like the world of the first century church than it ever has been. And the gospel went forth with great power and great conviction because individual Christians, instead of fighting against the powers that be, live for the power that will never change. For the Lord. They lived out the gospel. And so today, we find uh, just a very strange passage, because uh, the only place recorded in any of the Gospels, Matthew's Gospel is the only one that records this, Jesus gets into a conversation about politics. You didn't didn't know Jesus cares about politics? He does. He talks about paying taxes. And, uh, you know, this is not the verse that people have crocheted in their bathroom. There is no one that this is their life verse that when they think about, you know, here, these are inspiring words to live by. Um, But Jesus talks about the Christian's obligation and responsibility to the government, even a government that is corrupt and depraved in its thinking. And I can't help but be astounded at God's providence in directing us to this passage on the week where our nation now says, we get the chance to redefine everything. And if you haven't paid attention, there's already a, a, a court case that is out there for the legalization of polygamy. That didn't take long. And so what else will happen? Well, just buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be interesting. Because once you say this is not this, then anything can be anything. And so today, I think we have a passage. It's a quick passage. It's just four short verses. It's entirely appropriate uh, but even more so because God in his sweet providence has directed us to this on this day. So I pray that God um, will use my meager preparation to challenge us and to encourage us to keep the main thing the main thing. Because there are ways in which we can lament what's going on in our culture that does not glorify Christ, and it is not helpful. All it does is continue the caricatures and the grenades being lobbed over the aisle. And this is not an issue of political persuasion or any other kind of persuasion um, or orientation. It's an issue of what does God's word say. And so we'll be in Matthew chapter 17 
uh, verses 24 through 27. A very short passage. And we'll begin in verses 24 and 25, where we'll see that um, Jesus, as he is traveling, <clears throat> as he is traveling, there is the, the payment of a tax that is demanded. Look with me at verse uh, 24 and the beginning of verse 25. Uh, when they, the disciples and Jesus, came to Capernaum, those who collected the double drachma tax approached Peter and said, Hey, does your teacher pay the double drachma tax? Of course, Peter said. You know the story where we have been over the last couple of weeks. Jesus goes up on an unnamed mountain where he is transfigured and he is demonstrably shown to be everything, even more than what he has said. And they come down the mountain into a, uh, a valley where there's a city and there's a demon-possessed boy and the disciples can't cast him out. And Jesus comes and says, oh, you have such little faith. And they continue on their journey where Jesus will end up being betrayed and crucified. And they come to the town of Capernaum which is a crossroads town, which means it's a great place to collect taxes because of the crossroads. So perhaps on the outskirts of the town where the roads run through, there's a toll booth. And I think perhaps because of, Ma- uh, because of Jesus's um, reputation where he would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, this nature where he changes things, they go, hey, here comes Jesus and his merry band of disciples. Do they pay tax? Maybe he's changed that one up too. You know, you've heard it said, pay your taxes, but I say, buy a Lexus. You know, what's going on there? And so there's this question, and Peter goes, oh yeah, absolutely, of course. Now, we we don't know. There's no conversation to know. Uh, There's no record that Jesus has paid his taxes prior to this. And it's interesting because Matthew is the only gospel. Mark, Luke, John, don't record this. What, What did Matthew do before he became a Christian? He was a tax collector. He happened to think this little three or four verses was pretty interesting. Mark and Luke and John, they thought, ah, oh, not so much. Matthew said, hey, this is important to me. And there is a tax. It's not a Roman tax. It is a temple tax to support the ministry of the temple. So it's a Jewish tax, not a tax that goes to Caesar. And it is a double drachma. Now, a drachma is a coin that was equivalent to a day's wages. And it's the double drachma tax, which means it's two days wages. So we see that Jesus is confronted with this situation as he continues on his journey to Jerusalem. And in response to this, in the remainder of verse 25 through the beginning of verse 27, Jesus begins a discussion about the principle of freedom and how it is used. He talks about the principle of freedom and its usage. Look at with me at verses 25, 26, and the beginning of verse 27. Peter says, yes. Now when... He, Peter, went into the house, so they get to wherever they're going to. Whenever they get into the house, Jesus spoke to Peter first. Hey, Simon, what do you think? Who do earthly kings collect tariffs and taxes from? From their sons or from strangers? From strangers, he said. Then Jesus said, then the sons are free. He's talking about exemptions to taxes. Who's taxed? Does a king tax his Sons, or does he tax other people? And this whole conversation about Jesus talking about tax exemptions make you go, Jesus worked for the IRS? What is going on here? This is a weird thing. What's even weirder is Jesus is ostensibly not around when Peter has the conversation with the tax collector, but when they get to the house, Jesus starts a conversation. It says Jesus initiated the conversation with Peter. Peter, what do you think? Who's taxed? It shows his consciousness of conversations that he's not even around to hear. 
And if you think that's strange, he does the same for you. So maybe on your way to church, you let something slip that you shouldn't have. You woke up grouchy on the wrong side of the bed. And maybe your mom didn't hear you because you muttered it under your breath. Jesus heard it. He hears it all. And we see two reasons why Jesus talks about this important uh, principle of freedom. And the first thing that he says, he's, he's, he's making the argument that he himself is free from the tax because of his divine sonship. His divine sonship. Jesus is conscious of the fact that he is God's son. There is a exclamation mark put at the end of this sentence because just a few verses ago, up on the mountain, Jesus is transfigured. His glory and his power and his majesty and his authority is shown. And you hear the voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If there's any doubt about who Jesus is, the transfiguration proves it. And so as a divine son, he asks a very simple question to Simon. Who does the king tax? His son or strangers? And the truth is that a king's sons are not taxed, but his subjects are. A king's sons are not taxed, but his subjects are. Jesus is free. He is under no obligation to pay the tax because he is the son of the most high king. So what about us? We're children of the king by faith in Christ, aren't we? Aren't we? Aren't we uh, free as well? well? Certainly, I think Jesus kind of argues that. And there are some groups today that argue that we should be free from paying tax because of our relationship to God. There are some that even conclude that it should not be Christians that pay the tithe, but that we should tax non-believers to support churches when there's no separation of church and state. Some weird things, try to get away with that at the IRS or try to build a church budget on that kind of thinking, see how far you get. But there's a second argument that he makes beyond his divine sonship, and it says that he is free because he is greater than the temple that this tax is supposed to go to support. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, they're having this, this um, debate, and Jesus says, there is something greater than Solomon that is here with you. You quote Solomon, you swear by the temple, or there's something even greater than the temple, Matthew 12, 6. How is he greater than the temple? Well, think about this. In the most ultimate sense possible, the temple was most ultimately and explicitly built to worship him. Now, Jews may or may not have gotten that. They may not have figured it out, but the temple was built to worship him. Moreover, when Jesus dies, you know what happens right at the moment of his death? The great curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies is torn in two. Jesus is symbolizing that the age of the temple is over. There is no more priesthood. There is no no more mediatorship. You don't have to go to a priest to be forgiven. You don't have to pray through your rosary. You don't have to go through this. You can go directly to the Son of God yourself. The temple is torn in two. Everyone has access to the most holy place. So why in the world should Jesus pay a tax to upkeep a temple that doesn't even know it's supposed to worship him when he is indeed the Son of God. That's the force of this entire argument right here in these verses. But as we'll see, even though Jesus is free from the tax, and even though he is greater than the temple, he willingly subjects himself to an institution that he is king over, and he pays fully for the obligation. He goes on in verse 27... He says, so the sons are free, but so we won't offend them. Go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, and take the first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and for you. 
Jesus has already said he's free, but there's a principle related to the use of freedom that is important for us. Important for us to understand. We are definitely, hear me clearly, we are free from things. Free from hell, free from sin. We still have to fight against it, but we are free from. But a lot of times, and I think you even heard this in Patrick's testimony today, not only are you free from, but you're free for. You're free from sin, but you're free for being a slave to Christ. We'll hear that a little bit later in the scriptures. We are indeed free, but we are servants who intentionally limit our freedom for the benefit of others. And in a day and age where it is so easy for us to speak like God is no longer on the throne, when it is easy for us to go, God, what were you doing, taking a coffee break this week? God's word tells us that we have to fulfill our duties as world citizens, that we have to obey um, We have to obey the government that God has instituted and show genuine respect for it because God has ordained it. Listen to these passages of Scripture from Romans chapter 13. We'll look at verses 1 and 2 and verses 5 through 7. It says this. Everyone must, must submit to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist are instituted by God, even the ones that disobey Him and and, and hate hate His rule. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. Verses 5 through 7. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes. The very issue that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 17. You pay taxes, since the authorities are God's public servants, continually intending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to whom you owe taxes, tolls to whom you owe tolls. Respect to those you owe respect and honor to those you owe honor. We are told we are to obey the authorities unless asked to disobey God directly. And so on the issue of the week, you just need to know our definition of marriage has never changed. We will not condone sin We will not participate. We will be as loving and as kind and as gracious as we can without condoning sin. We know where we will stand and we know the kind of uh, weddings that we will perform in our church. And come the threat of hell or the threat of high water, we will be faithful even if it's not popular. And I ask you to stand with us because this will be a difficult thing. Franklin Graham has already stated, it was uh, yesterday or this morning, he said, there is a wave of persecution that will come upon Bible-believing Christians in this country like you have never seen before. And you know what? I think he's absolutely right. Because there's a tolerance that is afoot today. You see, the tolerance that my grandparents grew up with was a tolerance where my grandfather would fight for the right for you to be wrong. He could disagree with you, but you're entitled to disagree, uh, and he would die for your right to be wrong. Now, tolerance, isn't, tolerance does not allow you to have divergent opinions. Now, if you disagree, even if you keep it privately to yourself, it's a hate crime. And so there will come a day and age where churches will be charged property taxes, where cities will more aggressively zone so that churches can't have any property. The, the days of 1950s Christianity are numbered. The clock is ticking. Do what you can, while you can, because times, they've changed. But even in spite of that, even in the 
first century world where Nero was killing Christians, there's still this word. You submit to the governing authorities. Because our godliness is shown by our graciousness and never by our anger, never by our warfare. We fight not like the world fights. We fight with different weapons. And here's the reason. Why don't we fight like a special interest group? Because we're not a special interest group. We're children of the king. And our chief concern is never for our own rights and freedoms. Now that will be news for some of you. Because you think that the most important thing about you is your American citizenship and you're entitled to certain rights and freedoms. No, your citizenship primarily rests in a different kingdom. And in that kingdom, you regularly give up your rights and freedoms for the benefit of others. What is our chief and highest concern? It's to win a watching world through living out the truths of the gospel and not doing anything to offend others. So listen, take your stand on your moral issue. But let your stand be offensive and not your personality. Don't be a jerk. Don't be hateful. Be gracious in your stand for truth because nobody's ever won by you saying something idiotic. No church is ever glorified by you saying something dumb that might have the ring of truth in it. Stand boldly, but make sure that people are offended by the truth and not by the messenger. Does that make sense? There are ways people, you you get on the blogosphere, you get on Facebook, and some people should be ashamed of the way that they're standing for Christ talking about this. Because most ultimately, we have to remember, guys, listen, our battle is not against flesh and blood. People who disagree with us, they're not our enemy, they're victims of the enemy. And they now live under a world system that is reinforcing a diabolical plan to abolish everything that God established. I, I, um, Marcy and I support the Palmetto Crisis Pregnancy Center here in town. One of the most wonderful ministries, one of our small groups is getting involved in in doing some wonderful ministry there. They are helping young women in crisis who don't know where to turn, who are considering abortion to find ways to have alternate solutions. Wonderful ministry. And one of the speakers there said that if she was in hell's war room and she wanted to destroy God's plan, the first thing he would do is destroy, the very first target he would have would be destroying the family. And the way that you do that is by making abortion something that people don't even think about anymore. And then you go after marriage. And over the last 40 years, isn't that exactly what's happened in our culture? We have, we celebrate Memorial Day where we think about those who have died. And we don't understand that hundreds of times more than that have been aborted multiply every conflict that's existed in human history, and it falls well short. It's not even a tithe of the number of children that have been aborted. And then we create no-fault divorce, if there's ever such a thing as that. And now we are doing away with the institution of marriage. It doesn't mean anything anymore. And so our concern is not about our rights and freedoms. If we can be abused, and we can be ridiculed, and it leads to someone else believing in Christ then so be it. Because even though we are free, we will use our freedom to serve. Listen to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12, and a couple verses later in the chapter. Paul says this, We have not made use of the rights that we have. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Be real serious before you read that verse. used to be that going to church helped you get business contacts. 
going to church in the future is, is going to mean enduring everything. Because we will, it will become more clear. People say, well, you know, the Supreme Court, they stole the opportunity for states to vote on this. They didn't put it up to a popular vote. Listen, friends, we would have lost a popular vote. The culture has changed so much, it doesn't matter. Don't cry over spilt milk. Figure out how you're going to be faithful to Christ in a world where, for all intents and purposes, Jesus has left the building when it comes to our country. How do we live for Christ in light of that? Well, listen to this. Endure everything. Paul says later, For although I am a free man and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I become like a Jew. To those under the law, like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, but in order to win those under the law. To those who are without the Mosaic law, like one without the law, not being without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may, by every possible means, save some. Paul says that's our chief concern. And this morning, if your concern, if your focus is on how your rights and privileges have been violated, then perhaps you need to reconsider that being a Christian means laying down your life for people who don't even realize that you're doing it. It's what Jesus did. We conclude our passage here this morning in verse 27 by looking at a supernatural provision that is accomplished. Do you see this in verse 27? He makes the concession, I'm free because of my divine sonship, because I'm greater than the temple. I'm free, but so we won't offend them. Go to the sea, the Sea of Galilee. Cast in a fish hook. Take the first fish. Now, if he says take the first fish, what's he implying? Yeah, there's more. First fish. Take that first fish that you catch, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and for you. Here's the thing that's beautiful. Jesus has a conflict with the politics of his day over the issue of taxation. He's free. He doesn't know anything. But yet he provides the tax money for himself, He didn't know it, but for others. Even though he's the divine son, Jesus always sets an amazingly consistent pattern of humility. I'm not saying don't be offended. By all means, be offended. But be offended in a holy way. Be offended in a way that proves that you're a child of the king and that you don't have anger like a son of the devil. Be humble. Jesus has been gloriously transfigured. He's been uniquely declared God's son. He is moving towards Jerusalem where he will be betrayed and killed. And oh, along the way, he takes care of your tax problem. That's the kind of servant that he is. This one who is all glorious, has veiled and hidden his glory, but he manifests a greater glory through a servant-hearted humility. To, to, To serve a people that don't even fully appreciate it. Shiny Jesus from a couple weeks ago, shiny Jesus should be tax-free Jesus. But he takes the initiative to pay, not just for himself, but for others. Now, here's what's crazy. Did you notice the instructions he gave to Peter? He says, Peter, I want you to go fishing. And I can see Peter, you know, taking off already with his little fishing boats. Wait, 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 wait. I know you think you got this, Peter, because you happen to be a fisherman. Let me tell you how you're going to go fishing. Take a hook throw it in the water, 
You can catch a bunch of fish, bro. Yeah, right. <laughs> he tried that before. He's like, Lord, we've been fishing all night. Throw it on the other side. Okay. Oh, my. You know, bust the nets full of fish. Take a hook. Don't put anything on it. Throw it in. You're going to catch a bunch of fish. And the very first fish that you catch, the very first thing that I give to you is a provision for this whole issue of taxation. I've provided for you already. You just need to be obedient to get there. Go pick it up. There's a gift. There's a thing that's there. Jesus is sovereign over the sea. He, he makes, I don't know what happened. Did somebody drop a coin while they were fishing? You know, and then it goes down. And it, while it's kind of going, a fish that's large enough to swallow that coin just happens to swallow it. But evidently, it's not so big that it swallows it all the way because it stays in its mouth. It doesn't get down in its gut. And then this hook comes along and the fish that swallowed the coin that is, he's big enough to swallow the coin, but not big enough to fully swallow the coin, bites the hook with no bait on it, and it happens to be the first fish that Peter catches. Isn't that beautiful to see God's meticulous providence working all things out? Not everything perfect, but God's still on the throne to the point of commanding fish to swallow coins and for Peter to cast naked hooks into the ocean and catch the provision that he has. Jesus commands Peter in a most curious way. And I think he does this for a particular reason. He wants Peter to know, and I think us as well, that in every way possible that this word can be filled with meaning, we are dependent upon his provision and never our own professionalism. That's what he's saying to Peter. Peter, listen, I know you're a fisherman, but let me tell you, you're going to go fishing in a different way this time. He's not even noodling, you know? He is just throwing naked hooks out and catching fish because Peter would be tempted to think that his fishing skill is what put food on the table. His fishing prowess is what paid the taxes. And Jesus said, no, let's just make it really clear. I'm the one that provided this, not you. He's not interested in sensationalism. Jesus is not asking for more obvious fasting, more apparent giving, more demonstrative praying. He's going to serve, and he's going to provide for the people that will call upon his name. And that doesn't change. Let me conclude. <clears throat> We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> sounds like Peter could have written this today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Peter says, Conduct yourselves honorably among the unbelievers, so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. As God's slaves, live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the emperor. And today we're reminded that they will not know that we are Christians by what we post on Facebook. They will not know 
that we are Christians by how red in the face and how offended we get at what has happened. People will know we are Christians by the love that we have first and foremost for the Lord, but then in the way that that is manifested, even with those that we disagree with. Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, we need this word. Because in a day of talking heads and pundits, it is easy to politicize this. And God, there is much more at stake than mere politics here. The very foundations of society. And yet God, as disappointing as this may be, it is with great gratefulness that I come to worship this morning because I don't look to politicians to change anything for the better. There is no public policy that's going to change hearts. That is something that only you can do, Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you do that. We pray that you change our hearts. We pray that in our trust of Christ, that you will help us to be willing to endure the high privilege of suffering whatever, whatever may come, that we might point people to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is strange how God, I think, arranges. I laid out in a calendar probably a year ago the passages we would be at in Matthew, and it just so happens that Jesus talks about conflict with the world and the issue of taxation on this day. And I don't know that there is a richer and more appropriate way for us to appreciate the gospel than for us to appropriate the provision that he has made for us. And just to be clear, the provision that he has made for us, Jesus isn't promising to pay your taxes this year, okay? That's not it. Now, he he does. He's giving you a job. So he is providing for your taxes. But the way that he has made provision for us is through his son, Jesus Christ. See, the Bible says no matter where you line up on the issues of the week, for, against, on the fence, you are a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God, and you're in, you're in need of the Savior's blood to be reconciled to God. That's true of every single one of us. And today, we have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper. One of the things that God said we should do regularly, to remember the sacrifice. Because I think if you go too long, you forget that you needed it. How we need it, friends. So as our deacons come, I ask that you kind of enter into... Uh, prayerful state of mind is we remember and show our gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. <clears throat> Certainly, as we think about God's provision for us, the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. So everything that you enjoy, most ultimately, if it's not sinful, comes from God's hand. That's a wonderful thing to think about, to enjoy air conditioning, to enjoy friendships, to enjoy family, to enjoy faith family. Those are gifts that God gives Let's never substitute the lesser gift for the most important gift. And that is the substitutionary death that Jesus died in your place and in mine that I might be forgiven because I have faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins. What a wonderful privilege that is. And so more than simply providing our taxes, he has paid an enormous debt that only he could pay that we never had any hopes uh, to be able to pay. And the truth is for us, the good news of the gospel shouldn't just change which door we get to go in when we die. 
it should change the entire pathway that we walk on our way to that destination. The gospel is not just, you know, insurance for when you die. The gospel is the pathway we're supposed to walk as we follow Christ faithfully in a world that is shaking their fists against everything that smacks of godliness. And so today, we believe that believing the gospel is a prerequisite to the, to the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper. More than that, we demonstrate our belief in the gospel by being obedient and doing the very first thing that he says to do. As we saw this morning, taking the first step of obedience and being baptized. And so believing the gospel, being baptized as a believer, and then following God faithfully as a believer are the things that the Bible would establish are the baseline before someone can participate. So as is our habit, we invite all scripturally baptized believers who are members in good standing with their churches to participate. And we do that because the Bible gives a specific warning in 1 Corinthians 11. It says this, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So as our deacons prepare to dispense the bread, I'm going to ask you to go to God in a a moment of prayer, thanking Him for being your Savior. And even though He's already made provision for you to be forgiven, it's important for you to confess your sins to the one who died for you.